This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Sherry Irvin, Presidential Research Professor of Philosophy at the University of Oklahoma. Her new book, Immaterial, Rules in Contemporary Art, is just out from Oxford University Press. Art forms have rules, usually implicit, that govern the experiences that artists want their audiences to have. For example, a representational painting should be hung right side up, The same sort of paint medium should be used in restoration, and the painting itself should not be touched. In Immaterial, Irvin argues that contemporary conceptual art is constituted by custom rules as well as by their physical medium. The artist may specify, for example, that the work is intended to be handled or eaten or made out of anything or even installed however the gallery or museum wants it to. On Irvin's view, such rules are essential for expressing a work's meaning, even though they can also make that meaning difficult for audiences to grasp. In this illustrated volume, Irvin considers a wide range of contemporary works to present, elaborate, and address challenges to her view. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Sherry Irvin. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, this should be really interesting. Another uh, delve into contemporary art. Um, tell us a bit about first about yourself and you know how you bumped into philosophy um, and how you came to your interests in aesthetics and the writing of this book. Yeah, um, I came from a kind of smallish town in Arizona. And um, I really enjoyed writing fiction, but I thought, well, there's no career in that. And so I thought maybe I'd go to law school. So when I went to college at the University of Arizona, I kind of got this feeling that you could do pre-law and you should take philosophy. And so I took a philosophy class and I just immediately, it really clicked with me the way that I think. So I ended up studying philosophy and uh, then I went to grad school and I really just really didn't, grad school didn't agree with me very well at all. 
and uh, I ended up uh, leaving the program, ABD, moving, it, but, but I was living in New Jersey and I kind of started to learn about contemporary art, which isn't something I had really known about when I was younger, got really interested in it, ended up moving up to Canada, to the Ottawa area and getting more involved in the contemporary art scene up there. And I was in the National Gallery of Canada. I was doing some writing for their website back when websites were new. And I ended up looking in the, some of their object files um, for some of the complex installation artworks that they have there. Um, like there's a work by the artist Liz Magor that's called Production that I think she made around 1980. And I was sort of reading through these faxes that she had sent to a curator named Germaine Coe, where they were kind of negotiating how they would install her work. And the work had a lot of pieces, like thousands of pieces. And I was like, this is interesting. Like, I always thought of artworks as having a fixed form. You know, if you make a sculpture, there's one way to install it. And I was sort of like, what, what is the work if it's got this stuff, but then they have to negotiate how they're going to install it on a given occasion? How do we capture what that thing is? And so then I ended up thinking, well, maybe I could finish my PhD in philosophy. Maybe I could work on this question. So I sent an email to Alexander Nehemas at, at Princeton, which is where I was ABD. And I said, hey, what would you think if I like wrote my dissertation and emailed it to you from Canada? And I had never taken an aesthetics course. I've still never in my life taken an aesthetics course. And he said, okay. And so I just ended up doing my dissertation in philosophy from a distance. And the project that I did there is really the one that has animated this book many years later. It's sort of been a continuous uh, project of kind of it's trying to sort through some questions related to the way that art is made and understood and installed now. Hmm. Interesting. Um well, I mean, so the book Immaterial, right, Rules in Contemporary Art, um, and you have in mind particularly conceptual art, so, um, and the overall argument or position is that rules are constitutive of, uh, of contemporary conceptual art, as constitutive as, you know, the, the stuff that they're made of. Um, so could you just explain that overall position? Sure. And I want to, there are kind of two ways that the expression conceptual art is used. One of them is much more restricted to a kind of movement of the 60s and 70s. Um, I'm looking at works that are often described as conceptual, um, but are often very much uh, based in physical materials. Like a lot of the works that I write about, even though the book's called Immaterial, it's because the rules are a kind of immaterial component. But I'm writing about a lot of works where the main work the artist is doing is putting together some kind of physical material. And yet these rules are also playing a really key role in making the work what it is. So, um, so I'm not using, when I talk about conceptual art, I'm not using it in that very narrow sense. And some of the work I talk about people wouldn't say is conceptual. But the basic idea is um, that when artists make works, they often are furnishing some sort of fabricated physical material or selected physical material. But part of what the work is, is also governed by certain kinds of rules about 
either how the material stuff is to be displayed or how the material stuff is to be conserved over time or how we as audience members can or may or may not engage with the material that is on display through some form of interactivity. Now, if you think about, you know, the sort of, um, you know, the art form of painting as it existed maybe 150 years ago, you can kind of see these rules operating in a sense um, negatively. Um, although not all of them actually. So an artist makes a painting and you might think, okay, well, that's just a, a physical object, right? That's, that's its whole substance. Its whole structure is that it's this thing, it's paint on a support and you're done. But the fact is that there were rules governing those works too. You know, you'd have a correct orientation. Usually if there's a picture, the picture is going to be right side up. Um, you're wanting to preserve the painted surface. The integrity of the painted surface is key to the persistence of the work over time. If it gets destroyed and it can't be repaired, that's destructive of the work. Um, and that art form was not an interactive art form. There was a rule that you're not supposed to touch those things. You're not supposed to mess with them. So now artists have started um, changing the it, rules of engagement where conventionally the art form of painting had those rules. Now artists have started to kind of play around with them and say, well, what if I specify an orientation where the picture is upside down? That's George Basilitz. Or what if I specify that you're allowed to repaint the painted surface and my work can survive that change? That's a Canadian artist named Gerald Ferguson and his maintenance paintings. So artists have gradually over the past several decades started to create works that play with and create what I would call custom rules that apply specifically to their works. And those rules become kind of part of the structure of what the work is and part of the structure of what you have to take on board if you're going to understand what the artist is up to and what that work expresses. Okay, good. Um... So, um, well, let's, let's, let's widen, because you mentioned that, you know, this is not necessarily the conceptual art of, I don't know, the 60s and 70s. Um, so you mentioned a few paradigm cases. Are there paradigm cases of conceptual art that, would, that your analysis wouldn't cover? Um, I think that there are probably some, well, I mean, there, as it turns out, there aren't really any cases of art that my analysis wouldn't cover in the sense that there are artists who are playing around with these rules. There are artists who are choosing not to play around with these rules so much, but it is still the case that rules govern their works by default. So, the kind of art world that we're living in gives us a background of like, you know, if an artist fabricates an object and says, this is my work, we're not supposed to mess with that unless the artist specifically suspends the rule that you need to preserve that object as it is and kind of leave it alone. So there are these default rules that apply even to works where the artist is not specifying custom rules. So the analysis applies to works. If the artist just says, hey, here's a sculptural object, there's nothing special about being able to interact with it or whatever, 
it is still governed by rules, but it's governed by those rules that kind of supply the background of the yeah. art form. I see. So, so would it be the case that any any art form where these default rules are being broken or played with, would that be conceptual art by your by your analysis? Well, I don't. I don't really restrict my analysis to conceptual art so much, but it is true that people tend to use the expression conceptual art to talk about cases where the physical object itself um, is not kind of fully sufficient to constitute the artwork. I don't think it ever really is because of the way the rules operate in the background. But when artists are expressly playing with it, people do tend to think of that as a more conceptual form of art. I see. Okay. Okay. Cause you know, I, I was just thinking about, uh, you know, it's, it seems like, you know, classical cases of conceptual art or, um, you know, really do kind of fit your, the analysis of rules and, and playing with these roles. Um, but of course, you know, theater and music and dance and everything else, they also, you know, have their rules and, and those rules are also, you know, get broken, like, you know, breaking through the fourth wall in theater, you know, it doesn't stop being a play. It's just that you've just broken a particular rule that is the default, you might say, for a play. And I'm not sure. um, I was thinking, well, okay, if you break that, it's still a play. Um, So I just, I was just wondering, you know, does, would that type of thing, it would still be theater, but it would have this rule-breaking element that would make, give it a rule-breaking constitutive part? Is that from you, on your perspective? A rule-breaking constitutive part. Well, let's see. Um, I think so. So, okay, maybe this is how I would sort of see the analogy. So in painting, there have been these longstanding conventions of the art form of non-interactivity, for example. And then there are artists who have sort of suspended the applicability of those conventions to their own work by creating custom rules that govern their work. They're different from the conventional rules. So I guess that's what I would, that's what I might say about that case. If you're talking about a case where it's the playwright who actually Um, chose to break the fourth wall. Um, Yes, the playwright has specified a set of rules for their work that are in tension with the conventions of the art form. Mm -hmm. Does that that fit? Does that connect? Yeah, I I think so. I think so. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just exploring the idea of, of, you know, of the rule element of conceptual art and, you know, what exactly it, it, it would cover. Um, So, Again, conceptual art, uh, you know, I'm thinking of people like Elizabeth Shellikens or others who have defined it in terms of uh, ideas, you know, where she actually, I believe, identifies the work with the idea, you know, and, and it's not the material stuff isn't, you know, is not constitutive, at least not essentially to to the work at all. How, how does your view compare with that? Not, um, I mean, there's two elements there. One is, 
you know, is, is the matter, you know, the physical matter essential as opposed to not. Um, but the more interesting question actually is just what's the difference between saying that a rule is constitutive and saying that an idea is constitutive. Got it. Um, so I think Elizabeth is in her work on conceptual art, she's, she's mostly focusing on that kind of narrower, um, more physically spare kind of artwork that was mostly characteristic of a movement in the 60s and 70s, although some people have continued to make work in that vein. So my analysis applies to those works, but when I talk about conceptual art, I'm speaking more broadly. But let's take a case from that era, like Lawrence Wiener um, has, has done all these works that are like strings of text. So one of the really famous ones is called a stake set, like as in a tent stake, S-T-A-K-E. And what you do to display the work is you just display the words, a stake set. You know, you might put them in vinyl lettering on the wall or something like that. And um, Wiener has actually said he, um, he's got a work in the collection of the Perez Art Museum, Miami. And he, his representative, his gallerist actually told them, you can display the string of words in the work that you own any way you like. You can write it in lipstick on a sidewalk it still is an acceptable display of his work. So I think Elizabeth would say that work is an idea. I would say that work is constituted by a set of rules for display. You have a string of text, you have to install it in some visible way, but you have a great deal of latitude with regard to how you do that. So. I'm going to think of it as the artist is setting up an ex the possibility of creating an experience for the audience. The idea that ex is expressed by that is something that we can then, on encountering a display and maybe on knowing a little bit about the fact that that particular form of display isn't mandatory, we can then start thinking about, okay, what do I understand this work to be expressing? So for me, I'm going to separate this, the stage of what is the work in itself from the stage of what does the work express? How should we interpret it? And I'm going to think of those as being separate with the, what the work expresses is kind of constrained by what its structure is, but the structure is really determined by the rules and the idea is not kind of directly stipulated by the artist. Okay, good. That was, that was helpful. So you've mentioned, I mean, you've mentioned rules of display, uh, how to conserve a work, you know, what changes you can or cannot make. Um, and then uh, rules of engagement or participation. All right. Could you, could you explain those three basic types of rules? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I mentioned at the earlier on, I mentioned a work by Liz Magor called Production. She's a Canadian artist. And um, she used a press to make bricks out of newspaper four at a time. She did this over a series of many, many months. And so she had thousands of bricks. This works in the collection of the National Gallery of Canada. And there's no one fixed display of the work. You have to take the 4,000 bricks and you have to build something out of them. And then you also display the press typically alongside the work. And so, but you can't just like throw the bricks in a heap. You need to build something. And she says, I think one of the quotes in her, one of her faxes is, I like it best when they try to act architecturally. The idea would be that they completely cover a wall or something like that. 
but you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be like that. So, so there are rules for how to display this work. You have to build something out of it. Can't just throw it in a heap. So that's one example of a rule for display. A rule for conservation is a rule regarding how you need to take care of the objects over time. And, um, and that's important partly because it helps to sort of show what is integral to the work versus what is going to be treated as or construed as damage and is thus kind of bracketed off as external to the work when it comes to the process of interpreting it. So I talk about um, a work by the Israeli artist Sigalit Landau, which is called Barbed Salt Lamps, and which she made in, I think, 2007. And she's got a series of them. And she made these structures, which are like kind of lampshade structures, they're frameworks, but she built them out of barbed wire. And then she immersed them repeatedly in the Dead Sea until salt from the Dead Sea completely crystallized over the barbed wire structure. And so when you see these um, objects, they have they're very they have this very, very idiosyncratic shape um, having to do with how the salt crystallized around the barbed wire. And you can't really tell necessarily that it's barbed wire, except that the medium of the work is listed as um, barbed wire and Dead Sea salt when they're displayed. But so the the point related to a rule of conservation is that sometimes this salt chips off. And um, what she has specified to the, and this, this again is a work in the um, collection of the Perez Art Museum, Miami. And I went and did some research there years ago, um, back when it was still called the Miami Art Museum. So I have a number of examples from their collection. But what she told them was, if the salt falls off, don't reattach it. Just, you know, you should try not to ding up the works, be careful with them. But if the salt falls off, you let it fall off. And so, and you don't, you know, that's that's okay. That's that's normal. And so that kind of gives you some interpretive material to work with here. Um, these are not objects that are envisioned as pristine and are going to be kept in a pristine condition indefinitely. These are works where you're going to see over time an erosion, and that erosion has been kind of um, uh, embraced by the artist as an aspect of the work. Hmm. That's, that's so interesting. That's, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, uh, quite a, quite a, a contrast with. Um, so there is a, a sculpture, or um, uh, at the University of Iowa campus by Saul Lewitt, or it's a Saul Lewitt work, um, and it's falling apart. And the reason why it's falling apart is because there's a clause in the contract that it has to be renovated to very precise, you know, um, standards. You know, the, you know, it, it can only, you know, you can't replace certain things, you, or you can only replace them with certain materials and nothing else. And so, essentially, because of a stalemate over how it can be properly um, conserved, the thing is just kind of deteriorating. And, and that's, that's Solowitz's rule, apparently. Um, which is interesting because he's usually thought of as somebody who provides rules and then you 
follow it. I mean, so he seems to be a paradigmatic case, but on the other hand, it's like the actual material matters so much that the thing is falling apart because they can't reach agreement on this. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, the outcome is the the, the object deteriorates, but at least, um, you know, he, as part of his artistic legacy, that's clearly clearly identifiable as damage, right? Whereas if it's restored, but it's not restored the way he wants, it becomes a little bit ambiguous. You know, that starts to, like, probably people now can see it and know, obviously, this, or it very likely this work is damaged. Um, and he can say, yes, that's a damaged work. That doesn't represent my work. But yeah, a, a restoration that doesn't go the way you want um, has suggests something different about the nature of the work. Right, right. Because a different artist would say, yeah, yeah, it's doing what I want it to do. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I, I didn't mean to. Um, so participation or engagement. What the... Yeah. Um, so there's a, there are these works by um, the Brazilian artist Ligia Clark. Um, she, they're called the bichos, which means creatures or critters. And um, they are actually, they're, they're, they're sculptures made of sheet metal. They're, they kind of vary. Like they're ones that you could, you could kind of hold them in your arms. Some of them are bigger than others, but none of them are so big that you couldn't potentially hold it. Um, And they're made out of sheet metal that has hinges. And she intended them for you to be able to play with them and construct shapes out of them. And I write in the book about there are a number of people who have kind of written about what it's like to do that. And they say they're really stubborn. They tend to you'll be trying to do something with it and make it stand up and it'll just like bang and flap around. And, you know, the next thing you know, it's like flat again. But you can potentially make it into these very, very beautiful shapes, I guess, if you have patience and are really good at balancing the object. Um, So for her, it was really, really important that people be able to have an experience of manipulating these objects, because she really wanted you to have, like, she would talk about you're having a body to body experience with the work and kind of experiencing almost like its selfhood in relation to your selfhood. So that engagement directly and having a sensory and physical experience of the work was extremely important to her understanding of what those works were and what they were designed to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and apparently that is the, the beaches are not being treated that way. Right. So uh, from what I understand in the, in the book, there's a, there's a violation of her desire to have them handled uh, that seems to that people are people are more interested it seems in preserving them and that seems to go exactly opposite to her actual intention with the works yes so this is this is definitely exemplary of some of the deep tensions that exist in um, contemporary art and in, in museum practice um, when it comes to artists' desires to let people engage with objects. And then the museum thinking, what is my entire fundamental purpose? It is to preserve works to be accessible to audiences in the future. And if I allow all of the engagement that the artist may have envisioned, and sometimes that the artist envisioned at an earlier stage in their career when their works were not held by a major museum that might have thousands of people come in on a single weekend, 
So there's, there's a real tension there. So yes, it's absolutely true that she was very insistent that people should be allowed to handle her works. And now these works are extremely valuable. And generally speaking, um, direct handling of them during an exhibition is not permitted. And instead, what often happens is um, the museum might um, give, create some replicas that you're allowed to handle so that you can both see the original objects, which are typically displayed in these really like triumphal um, arrays. You know, usually the, who, the installers um, create these amazing looking sculptural configurations, the best that the work could possibly look. And then they put some replicas there for you to play with so you can kind of see how they behave. Um, but yes, that's a very common um, way that these works are are displayed now, and it does violate the rule that um, that she expressed for the work. But as I say in the book, I I don't think that that I, I don't see that as necessarily ethically wrong. I think it's true that the museum has a legitimate interest in preserving works for future generations and safeguarding them. And it is also true that if you let people keep playing with these works such that they fall apart and can't be um, suitably repaired, the work eventually is destroyed. So what I would say is happening now is that when the work is being shown in this kind of static sculptural configuration and you have something else to play with, you're not quite seeing the work itself. Like the work isn't quite on display because the full expression of the work is to be able to manipulate it. But you are being given ex an experience that really gets you pretty far in being able to kind of understand in its fullness what these works are and can be. So I think that that, that done well, that can actually be a good solution to giving the audience a certain kind of experience, but also making sure that the work is safeguarded. Uh-huh. Okay. Good. Um, so you mentioned accessibility. We've been talking about, you know, how the audience can, you know, access, can access the meanings of the work. Um, how, how do the rules express the meanings of the work? I mean, what's, what is, what is that relationship between the rule and then the meaning that the work is supposed to express? Okay. Um, it, you know, it really varies a lot from work to work, I would say. Um, you know, with, with Lija Clark's works, I think she's really wanting you to have a certain kind of experience. And that rule is critical to the kind of experience that she has designed for you as an audience member. And so I wouldn't, you know, sort of translate that into the notion of meaning that's articulable in words so much as this work is expressing something about our physical engagement and our you know, struggles and abilities to create something that's beautiful, but ethereal and you know, some, some things like that. Um, in other cases, the rules, it, you know, every set of rules, just like every batch of material stuff, kind of operates in its own way in generating meaning. So, um, I should talk about the works of El Inatsui. He's a, um, a Ghanaian artist who uh, works in Nigeria. And um, he has these works that are, you could call them wall-hung sculptures. 
Um, they are made usually out of liquor bottle tops that he has collected and then copper wire that's used to attach them together. And many of these are absolutely enormous works. He's got a whole workshop full of many, many people who help in shaping the liquor bottle tops into very specific designs and then attaching them together into blocks and then eventually assembling an entire work. So they have something of a tapestry element to them. Um, in the way that they are extended in space and can be hung and manipulated and folded. Um, so the main thing, they're extremely beautiful. I certainly encourage anybody who's not familiar with these to, to look them up. Um, they're extremely beautiful objects where many, many, many hours have gone into their fabrication, like hundreds or thousands of hours. But they're also accompanied by a rule for display, which is that the installer should make the decision about how they want to hang them. And the installers are free to do custom folds and drapes. Um, they're free to kind of let part of the work drape onto the floor if they need to. They're free, some, some of the works are multiple panels and they can rotate the panels if they want to. They can have it go around a corner. And he embraces all of that. And he calls that, um, the, he, he says the works are governed by a nomadic aesthetic um, and that he really wants you know, he doesn't feel like he should be the dictator of everything that happens in the work's life. And he wants the installers to engage their own creativity, which they're often not invited to do in the installation of work. Very often, they're trying to do something that's very much governed by the rules and or the aesthetic of the artist. And he really wants them to have an opportunity to engage their own creativity. And so part of what we're supposed to understand about the works is something about the social an institutional situation in which art and creativity are occurring. So then whose work is it? <laughs> it's his work. Okay. It's a clear if... case for me. It's his work, but it's also true that there oh. are installers who play a role in constituting individual displays. Okay. But that's going to affect the meaning, won't it? Well, the it's going to affect what we experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to affect what we experience for sure. And uh -huh. um, so it's helpful if you're going to really understand what he was up to, it's helpful to know that when you see a particular display and you see these incredible folds and drapes in the display, that's not part of what he did directly. He didn't stipulate that specific configuration. What he did was say, hey, installers, please, please have fun. Please, please add whatever you think would make this work beautiful or do whatever you have to do to make it fit in this space that you have to work with. So museums have started to, and this goes back to, you mentioned like how, to, how, how can the audience know? Museums have started to be very conscious of, and some of them have spoken directly about this. Like, yeah, you need to share the fact that that's how these um, displays came to be. You need to put a little note on your website and on the wall text nearby that says, he didn't specify this particular display. He created these objects and then he welcomes us to display it the way that we want to. And if the audience, the audience can get a huge amount out of these works if they don't know about that rule. And if they walk in and assume that the artist is the one who actually did all the folds and drapery. There, it's not that you're completely missing the work if you don't know um, that there's the rule for inviting the installers to contribute. But if you do know that, that lets you know more about what he was up to in creating these works. It wasn't just making this beautiful object, but it's also saying something about this social situation. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. 
Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Right. Well, that, that sort of leads to my, you know, the, there's kind of an epistemic problem um, or or at least concern um, uh, you know, typically if you're going to a, a museum or a, or a gallery or something, you know, they'll have a little label on the side and it'll tell you what the physical materials are. Um, and it might even have some sort of very general sort of blurb by the artist about various meanings. And it's, it's usually very difficult to kind of see where the, what the artist is intending and what the work is actually conveying. But in any case, what you don't see are rules or, I mean, you just mentioned, yeah, they, they maybe they they might say this particular one, but in general, I would say the viewer um, is going to confront a work without having you know, any sort of access to the rules. And so that, it just, it seems like this element creates a huge kind of epistemic gap between what the ordinary viewer is going to attend to or perceive in the work, what they're going to get out of it, and what the artist may actually sort of intend um, you know, so it's, it's like either you need to be a complete art expert and you know all these things or you shouldn't bother going. Um, how, how does that epistemic issue get resolved? So I would say um, there is a big epistemic gap very often when we're encountering artworks um, insofar as when we see a single display and it's true that the situation of artists specifying custom rules has exacerbated this to a certain extent. When you see a given display, um, if you see an object that appears that it may be damaged, I would say there was a time when you, were, you would be looking at a painting from a particular tradition. And if you saw that there was a kind of lacuna in the surface, like a piece had flaked off, you had a good sense, okay, this work is damaged. If you see that now with a work that was created within the last few decades, you're going to have more of you. If you are aware of these changes in the way that contemporary art is being made and constituted, you may have a question in your mind, which is, is that damage or is that something that the artist has actually embraced within the work? Similarly, you encounter a particular display of a work and things are configured a certain way. You don't know. Is it configured that way because the artist specified this precise configuration as required for this work? Or is this one of the permissible configurations? Or is it completely up to the installers to decide um, what the configuration is? It's true that there are some epistemic gaps. It's also true that there, there are many cases where the rule for display or the rule for um, in, in participation or interaction is fairly straightforward, you know, where you walk in and you 
see an invitation to do something and, you know, like to play with Leisure Clark's works, you know, one person starts doing it, the guards don't tell you to stop, somebody else starts doing it. And the rule is fairly straightforward and fairly accessible. So sometimes the rules can be easily conveyed, they can be easily known. Sometimes it's more complex and you might need a little bit of background information. Occasionally there's a case where the rules are really complicated and not everybody wants to mess with kind of understanding the landscape of those rules. Um, but if the museum or gallery can give you a bit of information, very often that, that can pretty efficiently and quickly fill in your understanding of, okay, this display that I'm seeing right now, how does that relate to what the artist specified? Are there other possibilities that I could have seen if I had come at a different time or seen this in a different place or not? Um, a little bit of background information will often kind of help you flesh out like, oh, okay, now I see a little bit of the bigger picture of what this artist made. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, so it is a bit more work for sure. Um, um, well, to, to what extent, I mean, the rules that an artist specifies, if, if they do, I mean, in, in some cases, like, you know, I want the viewers to play with these things, right. Um, or I want this, uh, this painting to be hung, you know, up or where the visual, the where the representation is in an orientation that's the opposite of what we would normally see, right? We call it upside down, but of course, from the artist's perspective, it's not upside down at all. Um, but no artist, of course, the, the, not all of the rules can be specified, right? Um, so, it, won't the won't the works always kind of be essentially incomplete? So there, you know, I mentioned early on some conventions of art forms that um, tended to supply a set of rules that applied to works in the art form as a kind of as a batch, like don't touch that <laughs> and preserve this surface. And the display of this work is a, of this object is essential to the work, you know, some things like that. Um, it's true that now artists have done some things to, you know, suspend the application of those rules and apply different rules to their work. But it still tends to be the case that there are some overarching principles that govern um, art in our tradition, like contemporary visual art, that do have to do with, unless you hear otherwise, the integrity of the physical object that the artist fabricated or supplied is important to maintain. <laughs> and unless you hear otherwise, you should leave that sucker alone. You know, don't touch it. Um, don't take things away from it. So there's tends to be a, a background of a kind of conventional background that supplies a default array of rules so that if the artist doesn't do anything to suspend them, they do still operate. And so that's what prevents these works from being just kind of radically incomplete. I see. Okay. So there's always a background of default rules. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so what you, you mentioned uh, in the book, you talk about uh, the idea of, of status functions, um, you know, within the art world um, and their role in determining what the work is. Um, could you could you explain that aspect of the of of your picture? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I think status function is a is an expression that John Searle uses. And so sort of talking about um, 
so one, I think an example he uses that I find is good for illustrating this is, you know, somebody might decide that they want to keep you off some land that they want to claim and use for themselves. And so they build a wall that um, just provides a physical barrier and makes it hard for anybody to get in. And so initially that is just really functioning as an obstacle, like a direct physical obstacle. And then somewhat happen sometimes what happens over time is that this the landscape shifts so that the person comes or some group of people comes to have a recognized right to occupy that land and to control access to that land. And so what was once a physical barrier may over time come to be recognized, perhaps by those folks as well as by folks outside of that wall as a kind of political barrier as a, or a political boundary as opposed to merely a physical barrier. And then even when the wall itself erodes and is no longer there, you still have a, a patch in the land that's kind of recognized as having the status of a political boundary. So, and the same thing happens with, with currency. You know, you have these, we, we have in the U.S., we have these pieces of paper that look really, really similar to each other, but nonetheless have very different statuses in terms of their value. So that's the, that, that's a kind of background idea, which is to say, like, things, so the way that this relates to art is that a thing comes to have the status of being an artwork through a set of kind of social agreements and understandings about like, what is art? <laughs> and what is the entity that's sort of playing certain roles for us? Um, what is the entity that the artist creates and that the museum collects and can own over an extended period of time? And the, the conservator might be concerned to protect the integrity of, and that the audience member can encounter and interpret What's the thing that occupies those roles and has the status of artwork um, in accordance with like how we're using it and what we're doing with it? And so what, what I'm kind of arguing here methodologically is the physical object alone can't do the jobs that it needs to do in those relationships. And um, you really have to think of the rules as part of the structure of the work to locate the thing that the artist created and made a statement with that the museum collects that we encounter that we interpret that's the the right thing to identify as holding the sort of status and having the function that the artwork has okay good that that was helpful um so that kind of leads to the next question is if you're doing a if you're assessing the work aesthetically how do you assess the rules aesthetically? Well, the um, the artist has created an entity. So if, especially if we're thinking about um, rules for variable display, for instance, you know, the artist um, maybe provides an object. So if we think about Elinatsui, he's created these very beautiful and elaborate objects but he's also specified a rule that allows that those objects can be installed very differently on different occasions. And we can ask, okay, he's created this set of possibilities for what the displays of this work can be like. What's, what's the value of having that kind of variability built in? What's the, what's the value of encountering those objects, but installed by different people according to different creative sensibilities? What's the object of thinking about what the social relationships are and the suspension of the artist's like dictatorial authority over the work? What's the value of all of that? 
So when we're asking, do these works succeed aesthetically? Part of what we should be asking is like, what is that rule that allows people to do different things with this object add to the situation and to our experience and to our understanding of art and what these works do? So I'd say that's kind of how that figures into our assessment of the aesthetic value of the work. Mm. So uh, that, that seems to, you know, push the view a little bit more towards the idea idea, you know, the idea of conceptual art as idea, because, you may you may recognize, for example, the what did you the the nomadic aesthetic which you mentioned before, right? Um, you know the fact that, in other words, so so he has this rule where these very elaborate bottle cap constructions, you know, and that that sounds very pedestrian, but um, uh, can be hung in all kinds of different ways, you know, depending on how the, how the installer wants to do it. And that's part of the work. Um, and that is supposed to be expressing a meaning, uh, involving nomadic something or other, um, some sort of nomadic aesthetic. Um, and that seems to me to be an idea. And so, uh, what so what seems to be ass, assessed for its its beauty, if you want to put it that way, would be this idea, um, which is what you know we were talking before about about Chelikins. That's what what seemed to be kind of essential to her position. So I would say there there. In my view, there's more to it than just thinking of that as an idea in the abstract. What we have is we have a whole situation in which actual realizations of this work are created by actual people, and they have experiences and they pour their creativity into it, and there are results that happen from that. And interestingly, sometimes the results are they actually copy what somebody else did before. There's been this wonderful photograph of a wonderful earlier installation and the installers then kind of try to copy it and create the similar folds and, and gathers that they saw in a picture from somewhere else. Because very often, installation is governed by photographs that kind of tell you, okay, here's how this is supposed to go. So there, so there are lots of things that happen in the course of installation and display where actually really interesting visual arrays occur and actually, you know, people actually live out some of the rules and limitations and conventions of how works are usually installed that Anatsui is suspending, but you still see those, you see how those continue to shape people's activity. So I would say it's not just an abstract idea. I mean, it's it's a nice idea you can talk about, oh, he's giving, he's inviting the installers to exercise some creative autonomy um, you know, that's great. That's a sort of simple idea that you can discuss without looking at the actuality of how it happens. But then as the work actually does live in the world with this rule governing the display, things actually happen. And you kind of kind of look at those things and see what you can learn from how it actually goes. Okay. Well, that's, um, yeah, that seems, you know, you mentioned before about the the needs of, of say the gallery or the museum or something in terms of preserving a work for, you know, many people to see, and this can create a bit of a tension with, uh, with the artist's intentions of having the, 
the artworks handled, you know, or eaten or, you know, let them deteriorate or, or various things of that nature. Um, but it, it, it seems like the, there seems to be this pressure, you know, on the part of the display institution, let's put it that way, um, that is kind of inevitably going to be at odds with certain artistic intentions um, uh, where the art, where the displaying institution will, will always kind of be wanting to, to preserve some iconic view or presentation or something along those lines. Um, and the more the artist wants to play with that, the more the institution is going to want to resist by having its installers follow the way it was displayed in the photograph, right? Which, you know, so it's, so is, is there more of a tension there than, um, you know, I'm not sure if there's more of a tension than, than your, than, than is act has actually been acknowledged, you know, given, given the, given the commercial aspects of the art world that seems to be in some sort of permanent tension with the actual art. It's definitely intention when we are talking about situations where the artist has suspended the kinds of rules of conservation that are usually used to maintain the integrity of objects or where they have embraced the audience's ability to um, participate in some way or to interact with objects. Now there are um, there are artists that have found ways of working in this space that don't that that don't kind of um, well I, I guess they do they do still create the tension but in a slightly different way. So I'm thinking for example of Felix Gonzalez Torres. So he has the series of works that are called Candy Spills, where he will um, well what what he specifies is create a pile of candy um, and um, you know, there's a title, the work will have a title, but audience members are invited to take candies away with them and eat them. And the institution in displaying the work is committing to replenishing the pile kind of indefinitely. Um, so he has found a way of what he's, what he's really doing, interestingly, is he's enlisting the museum, if they purchase the work, in a kind of indefinite project of giving stuff away. <laughs> which is not what they usually do. So, so there, there is a tension there. And some of the works are actually stacks of posters, um, you know, kind of prints, and you can take one of the prints away. And, you know, often when people see like, I'm allowed to take one of these? What? I mean, people are just like amazed because usually you're so like excluded from any kind of engagement, certainly taking a thing away with you. So he's found a way to work with it that doesn't engage the gallery or museum sensibilities of, oh, my gosh, we've got to defend our objects. Um, but it does get them into a project they're not used to, which is, hey, I'm just going to keep giving, giving this pieces of this thing away over and over again. <laughs> Um, but it's also true that, yes, there are cases where there really is a deep tension in the museum wanting to preserve a thing and the artist saying no. So a really well-known example is of a work by um, Zoe Leonard, which is called um, Strange Fruit. 
and it's owned by the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And it was acquired under the curator Anne Temkin, who subsequently left the Philadelphia Museum of Art. But the work is a bunch of fruit peels. Like, so Zoe Leonard and her friends like ate this fruit and they preserved the peels. And then she did all of this um, embellishment where she was sort of um, stitching you know, kind of stitching up the broken, stitching the fruits back together with visible colored stitching and embellishing them sometimes with like zippers and buttons and things like that. And so it's just these fruit peels that have been kind of codgered back together. And the display is often just sort of putting them, you know, putting them on the floor so you can see them. And when the museum was initially trying to acquire them, Zoe Leonard worked with a very well-known conservator um, called Christian Scheidemann in Germany to develop a way of conserving the objects so they wouldn't keep degrading because they were fruit peels. And she said, you know, he did a sampling of them for her and they were, you know, amazing. And she was like, no, that is not what I want this work to be. I need these objects to have to continue to decay. And I, I can't let the museum do the things it would normally do to conserve the integrity of objects indefinitely. And so she said, no, we can't do that. Um, you can only do sort of very minimal kinds of conservation. Obviously with fruit peels, they've got to do some stuff to keep bugs out and all that. Um, and, and even that there's, there's some tension, but what happened was over a period of decades, um, the work just didn't end up being displayed at all. And um, so they had initially kind of committed to it. And there was this sense that there was an openness to this suspension of the conservation rule. But it turned out that it was very contingent on a curator's having a strong commitment to the work. And so it's true that situation to situation or institution to institution, some, sometimes the, in, the museum is better equipped to really follow the rules. And sometimes they don't. And the tensions sometimes really do play out. Yeah, and it seems like there's another element here, which is the audience. Uh, you know, the potential audience, the 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 viewer. Um, there are rules, like just general social rules, about like how you're supposed to behave in a museum or in a gallery, and um, it seems like the rules the custom rules, so to speak, of the works and the responsive rules of the installing institution also have this other third pillar, which is the rules of people who go to these places and how they're kind of supposed to act. Um, I mean, you can imagine, uh, you know, people who don't know you know, maybe a hundred, two hundred years ago, or or nowadays, who don't who don't know what you're supposed to do in this building, um, is that is that a problem at all? Well, it's a problem in some ways, but it's also um, something that some contemporary artworks are really designed to get at. Um, uh -huh. So the the um, artist Adrian Piper, who's an American artist, but um, yeah. works in Berlin. in Berlin. I believe, yeah, yeah. She has um, she has this work called the Humming Room um, that she did, I think, in 2012. And um, to install the work, the gallery has to make these words visible. In order to enter the room, you must hum a tune. Any tune will do. 
And then there's a museum guard there. And basically the museum guard is the one who kind of monitors, did you hum a tune? <laughs> like, are you, you know, are we going to let you in? Did you hum the tune? And, you know, Adrienne Piper is, um, is a black woman and a lot of her work has engaged with race, racism, um, how race is lived um, in the American context. And um, I think this work really says a lot about the written and unwritten rules of participation very often, especially people who have not been socialized in a space where you were going to museums as a kid and you were learning about that, walk into a museum and you're like, oh my gosh, what, what do I do? How do I act? Um, where can I go? And sometimes those, if they don't know some of the rules, um, they experience pretty harsh treatment from museum guards who are like, you're talking too loud or, you know, all kinds of things like that. So, or they feel like I can't, you know, am I allowed to do anything? You know, they might feel very reserved and not feel able to engage in ways that are actually invited. So what she's doing is let's just make this rule a really strongly written rule. And let's make it very clear what the rule is. And it's kind of a silly rule. It's a little bit of a frivolous rule. How many of the rules that are, act in these spaces really are kind of silly and frivolous? So works having to do with rules can sometimes bring some of that stuff to the surface. It's also true that as the um, as some of the rules for not engaging have been suspended and as more artists have invited certain forms of participation. It's also true that there are works that are experiencing more intervention than perhaps they would have. Um, so the artist Janine Antony has um, sculptural works that she's made out of chocolate, which she sculpts with her mouth. Some of them she has sculpted by licking them. Some of them she has sculpted through biting. So they have tooth marks on them. And it's happened a number of times that somebody has come in. And so the, the licked ones are like portrait busts of her and people will come in and like bite the nose off of the chocolate bust. And those works have had to be restored and people put bite marks in this big chocolate cube that she created um, in a work that's called Gnaw. And so um, people are like, oh, well, it's chocolate. Does that mean I can eat it? It's got teeth marks. Does that mean that I can contribute to that? So people are sometimes doing uninvited participation in works. Um, so that's an interesting thing to see unfold. Hmm. Um, yeah. Wow. Um, well, I think we're, we're almost out of time here. I mean, it's been a really interesting conversation. Um, let me, let me ask uh, what is on the horizon for you. I mean, uh, this book just came out. Um, are you working still on something in aesthetics or are you moving into some other related area? What's, what's on your horizon? So there's kind of another track of work in aesthetics that I've been engaged with for quite a long time, which is um, in an area that's called everyday aesthetics. And it has to do with, you know, like in our ordinary encounters, how do, how does aesthetics express itself in, in our lives and in our world, not necessarily having anything to do with art. Um, I edited a collection a while back called Body Aesthetics, and I'm, a, I'm really interested in how we um, encounter each other as embodied physical beings and how that shapes kind of social interactions. So these days, I'm really kind of thinking a lot about connections between aesthetics and justice. Um, I've been thinking a lot about um, videos of racialized police violence. Um, I've been working on this topic for years, actually. And then, um, you know, seeing in 2020, 
um, the video of George Floyd and the huge upsurge of international concern about um, about racialized police violence and the hope um, in some camps, at least, that finally things would change to address this. And yet we're still seeing the sort of same rates of um, killings by police in the U.S. that we saw then. Um, so trying to understand how do videos function in in relation to understanding of these events and what are the limitations of video as kind of evidence that's going to straightforwardly support um, policy change. Um, so that's kind of one project that I've been working on. And then more broadly, just kind of thinking about the connections between aesthetics and justice. Um, the notion that we need certain things aesthetically that we can harm each other aesthetically or be socially harmed aesthetically, that there are ways that maybe there are norms that, you know, ethical norms or norms of justice that govern how we engage with each other aesthetically. Um, those are some of the questions that I'm very interested in and have been working on these days. Hmm. And they are very interesting questions. Um, uh, it would be great to have another conversation about, about that. Um, but we are unfortunately out of time. Um, so I just want to thank you again for, for such a, a great and interesting conversation about uh, immaterial. Um, I've really enjoyed this. I have too. Thank you so much for inviting me. You've been listening to my interview with Sherry Irvin. We've been talking about her new book, Immaterial, Rules in Contemporary Art, which is just out from Oxford University Press. Irvin is Presidential Research Professor of Philosophy at the University of Oklahoma. I'm Carrie Fingdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.